I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, Every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. One of the countries that was much in the news over the summer and going into the fall as well has been Afghanistan. And obviously that's because of the radical transformation in the governance there with U.S. forces withdrawing and the government falling and the Taliban taking over and everybody wondering what's going to happen now that the Taliban is back in control and wondering about it, not just about the broader political situation, but also because of drugs because Afghanistan has been for, I don't know, 25 years or more, with rare exceptions, the leading producer of most of the world's opium, which is converted into heroin. Uh, I say most of the world because when it comes to the United States, we mostly get our heroin from Mexico and in previous years from Colombia. But for Europe and Asia, Africa, it really is Afghanistan that's been the major producer. So today's guest is 
perhaps the leading expert in the world on opium and heroin and drug markets in Afghanistan. He's a British fellow named David Mansfield. He's somebody who's been going to Afghanistan for the last 25 years. He's been a consultant for all various governments and for all sorts of other agencies and consulting things. He's written a book called A State Built on Sand, How Opium Undermined Afghanistan. And he's somebody who understands this stuff profoundly and deeply. So, David, thank you so much for being on Psychoactive and having this conversation with me. Uh, Thanks for such a a resounding introduction, Ethan. What actually got you into this? What brings you to Afghanistan? What is it, the 90s for the first time? And is it the opium issue that gets you first engaged or Afghanistan that gets you first engaged? No, it it was in the 1990s traveling around Latin America and being interested in rural development. I'm not one of these narco warriors or or narco types. I am what would be rather disparagingly referred to as a tree hugger. I do uh, development work. I've worked in rural development. That's what my master's was in. I was asked to uh, identify a a subject that I would do my sort of master's thesis on. I spent over a year in Latin America and I'd come across the cocaine issue. I attempted to try and do research on that. And then subsequently, when the UN realized that I was particularly interested in doing this research. They said, join us and do the research. Don't do it through other parties. Join us, run our poppy survey in Afghanistan. That's what I did for three years. And I was 97. So my job was primarily to be the person who said, how much opium is grown in Afghanistan? And I always felt, yeah, it's okay. You need that as a quantitative sort of performance measure, as some sort of indicator of the, the scale of the problem. But I want to know... Why does a farmer start growing opium poppy for the first time? How are they introduced to it? What is the labor input into this? What is their actual net return? Because we always hear these claims about just how much money these farmers make compared to other crops. And then you look at how they live and you say, so where's the money? So that's where I start to dig into the weeds and look at some of these narratives. You might remember some of the stories from the 1990s were of the Taliban provides seed and training for farmers to grow opium poppy. Hogwash. Not an ounce of truth in it. The Taliban's providing credit. No, it's your neighbor. It's the the local haji who has some disposable income. It's your relative who's providing uh, essentially an advance payment on a future crop. You tell him you're growing opium and he provides an advance payment for you and you have to hand over at harvest time a kilogram of that opium. So we started unpicking all of these narratives and claims that were based on hearsay and you know the proverbial, as we would say in English, fat bloke down the pub story. So I want to first go back and let me just put this in a little bit of context for people, for our listeners, because, you know, most Americans don't know geography from anything. And Afghanistan's a country, it's in Central Asia. It is about the same population as California, 35, 40 million people. It's roughly the size of Texas, America's second biggest state. So it's a sizable territory. It has Pakistan to its east and its south. It has Iran to the west. It's got the Central Asian republics of Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan to the north. But we're talking about a country that has been the world's leading opium producer for roughly 25 years. So my first question for you, David, is I assume there's been opium growing there for a long time, but it never became the major producer 
until I guess sometime in what, late 80s or 90s? When was it and why was it, first of all, that Afghanistan was not so big before and then why it came on so big at the time it did? Afghanistan was a a producer uh, and an illegal producer going back hundreds of years, but certainly since the 20s and 30s, there was illegal production in Afghanistan. 1950s, they started to first try and impose their first bans on opium production to basically appeal to US uh, foreign interest and to basically try and gain some foothold in producing legally. By banning it in certain areas, they would be deemed an appropriate producer for legal purposes on the international market. But it was really since the 1980s when opium poppy cultivation really began to flourish Essentially, with the rise of the communist government, the encroachment by the Russians, and then subsequently the the civil war with the Mujahideen, infrastructure was destroyed, the irrigation systems are gone. And then subsequently, you know, there are very few crops that you can grow and that you can sell in in the absence of that kind of infrastructure. So people um, start to move to something that works. And opium was a crop that fundamentally worked in terms of the market comes to you. The trader will get on his motorbike, go down that pocked road full of potholes, and he will find his way to your farm and purchase opium at your farm gate. So subsequently, opium starts to move down from those remote upper areas in the valleys where it had been grown for hundreds of years and starts to populate the much lower areas, the irrigated areas, the areas where the Afghan state had had influence and power until eventually the war came and and, and it collapsed. And is it a sort of classic situation? I mean, when we think about, you know, Alfred McCoy's classic book, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, and his subsequent books, where wherever the U.S. was confronting, um, at that period of time, communists, or what they perceived as communists, you know, they were making deals with the anti-communists. So in Southeast Asia, it meant that you were working with, you know, Laotians or Cambodians or Vietnamese who would basically were fighting the communists, and you'd be shipping arms up to them to fight the communists, the Viet Cong, whatever, and then you'd turn a blind eye when they were shipping the opium or the heroin back into Saigon, or people made the same point around the Contras in Central America. And was it a somewhat similar situation where, you know, the U.S. and others there are trying to undermine the Russians, and it's the Mujahideen who are effective fighters against the Russians? And similarly, Mujahideen are making money from this, or are they getting more involved in it? And, you know, the outsiders are turning a blind eye, if not occasionally helping, because that's helping their friends and allies. Was was that fairly accurate? I mean, that's a fairly accurate reflection. But then you've also got this situation, I think, where a lot of these these political military leaders, they don't have absolute control. They are in a process of negotiation. They are in a process of bargaining with communities. They're trying to gain succor from them in terms of they're trying to get sons to fight. They're trying to get food and shelter. And as a consequence, We have this presentation of political military leaders within Afghanistan who coerce and control the drugs trade, as opposed to farmers and communities who have agency and an interest in cultivating these crops because they're one of the few crops that works in this kind of setting. And the fact that even were some of these leaders willing to ban them, as we've seen, Taliban ban of 2000, 2001, some of the bans that took place under various uh, regional actors under the Karzai government, 
when they try to make those bans, populations push against them because they have agency, because they can push against them, because they have access to guns. And some of these leaders are a little concerned about pressing them too hard and losing that sucker and support. So this, is, this isn't just something that's sort of always top down. This is something that is about the, the way these crops work in these spaces and how they appeal to the interests, the economic and political interests of a variety of different groups, at different layers within mm-hmm. those communities and, and political factions. Afghanistan, I think, becomes in the 90s the world's leading producer of cultivator of opium and exporter of heroin. We don't seem to see as much coming from other parts of the world, except leave aside Mexico and the U.S. market and and all of that. The question I'm wondering is why? Why Afghanistan? Because some of the conditions you're describing could also be true, I think, in other parts of the world. What do you think? I think they've got the ideal climatic conditions for poppy cultivation. I think that helps. Um, So they have, in terms of it being a a crop that's ideally planted in the fall and um, is harvested in the spring, it has the ideal weather conditions at those critical points in which the fact that it's got sufficient precipitation in the fall and it's got good, clear blue skies in the spring months. Afghanistan also has that added advantage of the fact that you do not have and have not had a strong government for many years. So as opposed to in many countries, you'll see poppy growing up in those remote areas where the soils are thin and where yields would be low. In Afghanistan, in the absence of an effective government that can enforce its writ, you basically have poppy being grown in well-irrigated valley areas. So you have the right Climactic conditions combined with the right irrigation and fertilizer and seeds all being available. And then you also have, as a consequence of its, again, collapse of government, the war, the absence of of jobs, you also have an abundant labor force. And poppy cultivation is an incredibly labor-intensive crop. If you're growing wheat, you probably take about 60-person days per hectare. If you're growing poppy, it's about 360 person days. You need cheap labor. And it's not as if you can't learn it, but you do need some knowledge of the crop, some good agricultural practice. And Afghanistan has had an abundance of people who have seen the advantages of opium poppy and you know worked as harvesters in one field for someone else and then said, I could do this at home and taken that skill to their area. And we've seen it expand as a consequence of this mobile population with these skill sets and this relatively good climate. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, 
and many tears and tantrums, but I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is a somewhat cynical hypothesis, right? But there was a point when Thailand was, I think Northern Thailand was a major producer. And then there's a point where it appears that the Thai government effectively cracks down on a big part of the opium cultivation and it moves over into Burma or some neighboring regions. And one could cynically say that the Thai generals decide, you know, we're taking too much heat for all this opium cultivation. That's what really brings down the wrath of the U.S. government. Let's push it over the border. Order. We'll still control the traffic, and that way we'll still profit, um, but we won't take the same heat for cultivation. And one might have made the same argument that, you know, in Pakistan, the generals are going, we're getting too much shit from the U.S. on this whole Northwest frontier, all the traditional opium growing out there. Hey, you know, let's uh, crack down there. You know, Afghanistan's always been growing this stuff anyway. Let's, you know, push the locus of cultivation there. We can still tax it and control it in various ways and this sort of stuff. And there are even some analogies to this in, in Latin America. So what do you think? All bullshit or some truth to it? or I mean, that's the classic argument of the balloon effect, isn't it? And, uh, and the argument is if demand remains static and you squeeze on supply in one location, it'll shift to another. It makes classic economic sense. But I think what's also quite interesting is how those 
attempts to squeeze production in one location can actually result in populations moving. And the populations you describe on the Thai border, Burma, Lao border, they were mobile populations. So in some cases, those efforts to squeeze actually resulted in entire sort of villages and populations saying, enough of this, I'm going across the border and I'm going to cultivate there because I have no choice other than to do this because there are a few options right. for me. And you can see some of that on the Pakistan-Afghan border, but I suspect what we also had on the Afghanistan side is a level of cultivation that just wasn't being tracked as well. So mm-hmm. rather than uh, the balloon being squeezed in one location and, and expanding in another, you probably also had some of these processes resulting in just the balloon just getting a lot bigger. The idea that Afghan farmers and Afghan communities would have no agency or just be the clients of of Pakistani traffickers and traders. Yeah, I think these things were running in parallel already. And there may have been a squeeze within Pakistan and some degree of expansion. But you already had this existing situation in Afghanistan. Some of the areas I've been over the years up in the up in the boondocks, up in the hills, people will say, we've been growing this for generations. It's not something new. And what you heard in the 1990s and what you often saw, the Taliban essentially had a sort of a small government attitude towards the economy. They weren't controlling it. They weren't dominating it. They were finding key nodal points in which they would tax on any movement of any product or good. In fact, the World Bank in the 1990s was estimating that the Taliban's primary source of revenue was taxing the trade in in legal goods crossing the borders and that drugs was a much smaller percentage of their overall finance. I spent time hanging out with opium traders in the in places like Helmand, Musakala, Kajaki, uh, Sangin. So these were the big opium bazaars of the 1990s and continuing in, into uh, this uh, century as well. This is all in that southwestern area of Helmand, Kandahar? Or yeah, this is. I, I was also spent some time in some of the bazaars in the east as well. But I would be hanging out in some of these bazaars and talking to opium traders about their life and about how they got into the business. I was interested in, as a development person, the rural livelihood person, how have you got into this business and how's it changed? And they'd often describe a situation in the days of the war, the civil war and the Mujahideen, just before the Taliban had come to power in 94, 96 in the south. And they'd say, look, you know, in the old days, we had so many roadblocks that we'd have to deal with because each Mujahideen party would control a particular part of territory. And there'd be so many expenses associated with it. There was one individual I remember in a district in Kandahar, and we were going to clean this irrigation system on the basis that if we cleaned it for this community, they should give up poppy, what we call conditionality. And so I was trying to understand, okay, who gains, who loses by this activity? And will it make a fundamental difference to their life so that they can abandon poppy cultivation? And this guy was sat by the little irrigation system. And and I asked him, how will this change your life? And he picked up a really small stone. And he said, this much. And he said, I'm a sharecropper. I live in this village, but I'm not from this village. He didn't own land and therefore didn't have a political stake in this village. And he said, all that does for me is means that... I get the same share of the final yield of the land. But because of the improved water, it might be a little bit of a bigger yield. So I might have some extra. But this does nothing for me. And as I sat there, a guy who looks clearly much wealthier than this sharecropper I'm talking to passes by and he stops. 
and he's got a nice watch and he starts chatting to me and he he mocks my bad watch and he says it's cheap and he claims this is Rado and he's just bought it on the Iranian-Afghan border. And I said, well, how, how come you got so much money? I'm an opium trader. And so I start talking to him about his years in the business, as I had been doing in other places. And he says to me, the Taliban's great for us because they've removed all these, these checkpoints. They're all gone. He said in the old days, and he, was, he had a motorbike, and on the back of the bike was one of these panniers, sort of classic fabric pannier. And he says, in one side, I used to have a gun, and the other side, I'd have money. Because if I went through a checkpoint, I'd either have to fight my way through or pay my way through. Now, nothing. The Taliban has been great for business. And so what I kept coming across with interviewing these various traders, they were more the pillars of the community. They were more wealthy. Many of them had done their hajj. But all of them described a situation of when the days of the Mujahideen, this was a costly business, a difficult business. The Taliban had come in. It was an easy business. You could travel between A to Z and not have to risk your life or risk your profits. They didn't describe a situation in which the Taliban controlled the business. This was still a large amount of subcontractors. Everyone was a, was a free agent who could operate within these kind of spaces. So a lot of this discussion that we have around how the Taliban controls or is a cartel, this is just ahistorical from, a, from an Afghan perspective. Mm -hmm. This is not how Afghanistan functions and works. You don't have that degree of vertical integration in these kind of terrains. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things I love about your book and your other writing is, you know, you just delve into the complexity of this thing. You know, it's like sometimes we, when we think that we talk about the communist government, this or that, or, or this autocratic government, and we realize, in fact, there's multiple competing factors within the government. And you point out, when you're talking about the Taliban, there are different factions in this thing. And there's the central government and there's the local, whether we're talking about back in the 90s or what's emerging today. And that even locally, I think you, at one point, I can't remember the exact quote you used, but you say the same person may be working for the central government on salary as a mayor or governor, and at the same time have an alliance with the Taliban, and at the same time play some role in cracking down on certain elements of opium. So these incredibly complex situations and fluid and changing over time, and also varying dramatically geographically from one part of the country to the next. So when we talk about Taliban and we think in some kind of unitary actor, that's a fundamental mistake, is what I pick well, up from your writing. My, uh, my good friends and, and colleagues always say to me, uh, they say, where do you think the Taliban come from? Space? The sky? There are brothers. There are cousins. There are family members. So you end up with these scenarios in, in some of these areas of, of Afghanistan that where poppy cultivation has been grown for many, many years and where there are few options. And so you'd end up with this hybrid situation where you have a family who has a son in the army, a son in the police, they grow poppy, they re receive some kind of development assistance from the government, they might have a brother who's a teacher in the local school, but they've invited the Taliban in because they can't afford not to have poppy. So you'd have this hybrid governance of this combination of different powerful factions who would be shaping this space. And it would be the communities themselves that would be shaping that space through these various deals that they were striking with these different institutions. 
what you described from when you first got there in the late 90s of basically the Taliban offering a better option to opium people involved in opium cultivation and trade. Now the Taliban are back in. What are they going to do here? I mean, are they going to burn everybody and say we're cracking down on opium and heroin again like we did in 2000? Or are they going to... What's your prediction? Tolerate this it's stuff. It's not a wise thing to do, ban opium, your first day in the office. Some recent work that we've just done in the southwest province of Nimroz illustrates that whilst the Taliban revenue from drugs is relatively small compared to the money it's making from taxing the cross-border trade, akin to the 90s. So once the Taliban managed to position itself on major highways and exploit the scale of the cross-border trade in cigarettes, tyres, diesel, the everyday, the mundane. Uh, Mm -hmm. Once they could sort of impose a taxation system on the main highways on those goods, it was making so much more money on that than, than it was from drugs. But there is a but to this in relation to the fact that those opium poppy farmers are still an important rural constituency. We estimated in one province, Nimrod, their Taliban was earning something like 5 million from drugs. And that wasn't just opiates, of course, because we now have meth production in Afghanistan. But they were making 5 million from drugs and they were making 40 million from taxing the trade from Iran because there are a few key choke points within this particular province. So 80% of their money was earned from taxing legal goods. It's a minor form of income for them, but absolutely critical rural constituency. And so you, you just can't turn on these farmers who've provided you support for years. And you can't turn on them because, in particular in relation to poppy cultivation, because for years you've been sort of advocating for continued poppy cultivation. And when the Afghan government, the Republic, was coming in and banning opium in some of these locations, the Taliban would use it as a political strategy to say, this government doesn't understand you. We're Afghan. You, We know you're Afghan. You need to grow poppy because of your economic situation. But these people are banning opium. This republic is banning opium because of the foreigners. And so they were using this, the Taliban, to try and gain political support in these rural areas. So the first thing, you just don't come into office and then say, right, we're going to forget that rural constituency. We're going to turn off the spigot. Mm-hmm. You look in Mexico at these horrific wars between the Jalisco gang and the Sinaloa gang or others, or what used to happen in Colombia, maybe still does, between the Medellin and the Cali and this and that. You know, wars over turf, ripping one another off. I mean, all this sort of stuff. In Afghanistan, you just don't hear as much about that sort of thing. Is that because it's not happening in that way? Or is it? And we just don't hear about no, it. No, we don't hear about it. You're right. And I, as I say, I've, I've hung around with opium traders in the 90s. And, and you know, we're doing a lot of work with people who are involved in processing and, and trade now. And you still don't hear about it. So it's almost as if there's enough business to go around, but also potentially an issue of market structure and the fact that you do have these, these independent operators of a certain size and that there isn't that dominant force that's trying to remove competition. This is a much more cooperative yet competitive space. Mm-hmm. And is that cultural? I mean, is there a reason why you don't have one person who tried to take over Kandahar and the whole thing by killing a whole bunch of the other people involved in this thing and trying to monopolize that thing? As, again, that kind of vertical integration doesn't really exist. What you do is you have this small government approach to the taxation of commodities as they move through space. So you, you step in at key points along a value chain and you tax rather than you try and control that entire value chain. 
because controlling that entire value chain in an environment like Afghanistan with its various fractures and its very localized political actors and tribal actors means you really can't gain that degree of dominance over a market like this. So, David, the subtitle of your book was How Opium Undermined Afghanistan. So I guess you're talking about these past 20 years. Why do you say undermined Afghanistan when it seemed to be such a huge source of jobs and employment and all of this? Because of its illegal nature. Because of its illegal nature, then you can't tax it. You know, all those classic arguments around why an illegal crop has a dysfunctional element to it in relation to a a state-building process. The levels of corruption you get, the fact that you can't tax it. But fundamentally, you know, I think we often overstate the value of opium within these rural communities in terms of communities' aspirations and what they wish to achieve. People will talk about opium poppy as a very difficult crop to grow. We had a colleague who was interviewing a woman about poppy cultivation up in the northeast corner of Badakhshan, and she broke down in tears and she referred to the fact that this was a source of misery for her because, yes, they cultivated opium poppy, but her son, who was very small, had been taking the opium that had been harvested and placed by the field, and the child was taking opium out and eating it and subsequently died of an overdose. And she was still growing opium, and she said, what to do? I have no choice. This is our economic reality. When you actually talk to many of these communities, they want to be doing something else. They want a job. They want a job in a factory. They want to be growing other things. And, you know, so there's this limited options for them and limited opportunities that they wish was not the case. I think if you look over the last 20 years, there has been a significant change in the number of options that they had in relation to how they could earn money. So I've watched communities where there'd be a large amount of poppy in that area. I mean, it wouldn't be at the 80%, 90% mark as you'd have in the mountains, but it would be at the 40% mark. And those communities have gone down to zero or had gone down to zero over the last 20 years because, again, they had opportunity. Suddenly, the road was improved. They could travel to the market daily. They could take crops like leek or cauliflower or tomatoes each day. They could sell it there instead of being reliant on this highly a labor-intensive crop, they would be growing a mixture of vegetables and be getting four crops per year instead of two crops per year, mixing poppy with, say, maize. So they could actually increase their income levels compared to poppy because they had good water, good roads, they were near the market. And as a consequence of some of the improvements in relation to governance and security, they were relatively secure in, in moving down that road and going to the market. And there were jobs in the city. And so I think we often overstate the importance or the level of dependency of poppy within Afghanistan. It is in particular kinds of communities and areas under particular conditions that you have this really high level of dependency. And many people do want to make that transition out of poppy. When it comes to the people involved in the business, the refining, the export, I mean, do you have any sense of, is it a very regionally based thing? Is this something where external players, Pakistanis, Iranians, uh, others are playing a significant role? People oftentimes point out the peasants only get a tiny percentage of the actual ultimate street value of these drugs, and that it's the people involved in the trafficking who get significantly more, at least, than the farmers do. 
Who's making money from this stuff? Anyone who can move volume is making money. I mean, if you look at the margins on all of these, I, we've been doing some work on smuggling of opium, processing of heroin, processing of methamphetamine. And the profit margins are much less than people think, even though you're further up the value chain. So if you're producing that, your real money is going to be if you can get it across the border into Iran or Pakistan. It depends whether you are producing and trading or just producing. But nobody emerges as a kind of Pablo Escobar or El Chapo in Afghanistan. I mean, these guys are, you know, there seems to be serious evidence they were making, in some cases, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Is there some Afghan expat sitting in Pakistan who's actually making huge amounts of money by controlling big parts of the the distribution or something equivalent in Iran or someplace else? You'll hear the claims. You'll hear the names that have been discussed, typically amongst uh, uh, Western officials. But the realities, I mean, what we see on the ground in Afghanistan, as I've mentioned earlier, is a lot of independent operators. I cannot, as a drug trader, move my drugs between A to Z. I have to basically pay someone to move them from A to B because that territory is run by this particular group or this particular population. Between B and C, it's another person, C and D. And this results in massive transaction and transportation costs. That's what we've been seeing. So all of that's cutting into your profit margins. So it's those who can move products with certainty and in volume that are going to be really making the money because there are so many costs associated with this business that are never factored in when we see these discussions around profitability of drugs. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. 
And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on Story Button, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So now let's flash forward here. The Taliban are sort of in control again for the last few months. Foreign governments are all saying, most of them are saying, we don't want to deal with you. All of the Russian and Chinese sound like they're more willing to play ball. The UN's got to figure out what is going on. The economy looks like it could just implode. So if somebody's uh, asking you for advice about engaging with the Taliban right now, What's your own thoughts about how, let's say, your own government, the UK government, which played a lead role, you know, in trying to deal with opium and heroin after the occupation in 2001 too? What would you be advising them about how to deal with the Taliban and how to deal with the opium issue there? In terms of the of the drugs issue, I mean, I really don't think that that's your starting point. In terms of engaging with the Taliban, I think there are far more fundamental issues around humanitarian assistance that need to be addressed. And uh, I suppose I would be somewhat concerned if people tried to make humanitarian assistance, let alone development assistance, conditional on drug control efforts, which is what was happening in the 1990s. We were all somewhat constrained in, in the 1990s about what kind of work we could do under the Taliban. We couldn't do any capacity building with the Taliban authorities in the 1990s. And what came under that, that rubric of capacity building? We were meant to do humanitarian assistance in the 1990s, well, we were doing a variety of projects that I would have argued stepped outside of that. And some of the projects that we were doing were actually asking communities to give up poppy to receive development assistance. So, in fact, you're in danger of undermining their rural livelihoods by setting up projects where you provide short-term assistance of a single sector on the basis that they give up drug crop cultivation. It doesn't work. It's never worked. That's the sort of thing the UN was doing at the time. I certainly don't think your start of your conversation is something as mm -hmm. deep-seated and as complex as the drugs issue. And I think we have to be a lot more realistic about what Taliban control of Kabul means uh, in relation to the drug situation. I think if you look at what was happening prior to the Taliban taking Kabul, capturing the government, the lion's share of the territory where drugs was being grown was outside the writ of the government. I'm not saying it was necessarily in the control of the Taliban, but it was outside the writ of the government. So the fact that the Taliban has now taken this extra territory doesn't fundamentally change the politics of the fact that people were growing drugs in particular areas. So the Taliban, economically and politically, the fact that they have Kabul doesn't necessarily mean 
that people are going to turn to drugs. What will mean that people will turn to drugs is the economic crisis they face, which mm -hmm. is one in which we have the collapse of the government, the absence of government jobs, which were critical in terms of non-farm income globally in every country that's produced drugs. Non-farm income has been the, one of the things that has reduced rural communities' dependency on drug crop cultivation. So in the absence of those government jobs, there's no longer any aid money coming in. There's no longer construction business. You know, no one's importing cement any longer. This means that people, they either leave the country because they haven't got a job in the city or they go back to their villages. Mm -hmm. And if they're going back to their villages, what are they going to grow in the absence of disposable income, in the absence of functioning markets? Drugs starts to fill the vacuum. And the Chinese and Russian governments, I mean, they've been, you know, viciously pro-drug war in terms of their engagement with the UN and elsewhere. But do they have a much more pragmatic attitude when it comes to the heroin coming out of Afghanistan? Um, because they're the ones obviously, you know, saying we want to deal with the Taliban right now. Or do they sort of acknowledge that the supply side control is pretty limited no matter what you do? What do you think? I mean, it's a good question, actually, because uh, at certain points, the Russians were particularly vocal about the drugs issue in Afghanistan. Certainly, if we think about some of the meetings that took place in 2010, uh, when there was an attempt to thaw the relationship between the US and Russia, some of those discussions focused on the drugs issue. But after a couple of years of that, they went very quiet, and I don't think we've heard much from them since around the drugs issue mm -hmm. within Afghanistan. You know, I'd be surprised if that was something that they really pushed to the fore at this point. David, let me ask you, I mean, it's a kind of impossible to answer what if, but for type of question, but I'm going to ask you anyway, right? We know that, you know, when you look at the fall of the Ghani's government and the Taliban takeover, we know that corruption and ineffective governance uh, and all of this played a huge role in all this stuff. But I'm also wondering... The question of what if the U.S., the Brits, what if they had just never given a damn about the opium thing, right? Because right after the occupation in late 2001, early 2002, it seems for a while that the U.S. is saying, we don't, we're not going to go after opium right now. They're, they're sort of following the advice you give now, right? This thing is well-established. But then it becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger issue, forcing the government, forcing Karzai first, and then Ghani to crack down one way or another, and all of the bullshit that surrounded that. What if that had never been a priority of the external forces. Would the Taliban, do you think, have been able to take over the way they did now? Because it seems that they did gain so much traction in many parts of the country from the fact that they could present themselves as the ones, you know, not pushing for this type of bans in the way that the foreigners were pushing Karzai and Ghani in the, in the central government. I mean, I think there are far too many other factors at play. Certainly on a number of occasions, it certainly didn't help. And you'd certainly describe a situation as I remember it in the early days. In fact, I remember being sat in a meeting with very senior U.S. officials. It was a, it was a side meeting at a U.N. conference and this discussion about drugs coming up. So this is early 2002. And very senior U.S. official, in fact, the head of INL at the time said, this isn't about drugs. This is about development. This is about Afghan reconstruction. And this is how we should proceed within Afghanistan, recognizing that drugs is an issue. And that's how it was presented. Two years, 2004, when the poppy cultivation figures went through the roof, suddenly your performance indicators fundamentally change. There's no space for that kind of reflection of reality. Now it becomes about politics. And I think ever since then, levels of drug crop cultivation become a fundamental performance indicator associated with 
is the Afghan reconstruction effort and the state building project on target or not? Because by 2003, 2004, people are talking about the Afghan National Army being stood up, girls in school, schools open. All these indicators were, some of them were quite positive. But the press would keep saying, but what about the opium? It's through the roof. And so subsequently, that state building project starts to hang in the balance in relation to some of the media coverage saying, well, yeah, you might be saying there's all these good things happening in Afghanistan, but poppies through the roof. How can you say it's successful? Mm-hmm. And politicians start to respond to that. And a lot of the, the discussions in the book I've wrote is about how that manifests at a, a local level, at a provincial level, at a national level. A strong state doesn't have poppy. If you have poppy, you're a weak state or you're a weak province. You're a weak governor. You're a weak head of a military commandership who's running that province. So there is this effort to drive poppy cultivation out, regardless of the longer term consequences. They certainly undermined efforts by imposing a blanket ban across a large area, regardless of the socioeconomic political circumstances of those communities. Areas could give up poppy tomorrow. They have a son who's got a job in the city. They've got good irrigation and a decent road. And they can grow a variety of different crops on their agricultural land. And when you ban poppy in those areas, farmers just shrug it off and go, oh, well, back to the other stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you impose that ban up in the boondocks, where they have none of those opportunities, and where the, the Afghan government has always been weak, has never had a presence, and doesn't have any service delivery, you impose a ban in there, and they're often on border areas, the population responds. It starts to experience this collective economic shock. It starts to react politically, starts to invite people in who might resist the government, and then it starts to crack. We kept going for these blanket bans rather than this development process, which would be far more about supporting farmers' transition. Mm -hmm. So, David, I'm going to ask you my last what-if question. You've pointed out in your book how oftentimes people underestimate the impact, for example, of droughts or blights or all of a sudden wheat is paying a competitive agriculture is doing really well and how those things can actually impact significantly on opium production in the entire country or certainly in regions. What if fentanyl takes over the world? Right now, fentanyl is a synthetic opiate. You don't need any opium plant. It's not like morphine. It's purely synthetic. We've already seen that there are parts of the United States and Canada. There's almost no heroin around anymore in some of these cities now. And we don't really understand why fentanyl is very present in some cities and not at all in other cities in the U.S. And there is this possibility that fentanyl, because of the costs of production, are so incredibly low. And because shipping it around the world is so easy, if somehow the global demand for opium in the heroin that's derived from it, were to plunge dramatically, would that create even a greater economic crisis in Afghanistan or only in those mountain lands you were describing where that's about all there is? I mean, would this be a national crisis if there was a sudden transition globally to synthetic opioids and away from opium and heroin? These conversations around synthetics and the the idea that consumers just will shift across these different products is is one that is debated and the fact that some consumers prefer the original stuff as opposed to the synthetics is is one that prevails uh, i suppose uh, if you did have that wholesale shift it would not be that dissimilar from if you succeeded in comprehensively eradicating opium at any point you know using coercive methods if you remove the demand from it as well 
what are those those farmers to do in the absence of it? And yeah, I think that would create a major economic crisis, particularly in those areas that are highly dependent on this and are probably going to become more dependent on opium, certainly in the short term, in the absence of the flow of international aid and the absence of a functioning government that can provide non-farm incomes and all the kind of things that we have seen offer some kind of respite. I mean, you, you know, you have to remember that when opium poppy was banned in some of these areas that I've been visiting and studying for years, where there was an imposition of a ban, we used to visit the same families each year, year on year, sometimes every six months, for the best part of uh, 14 years. And when opium poppy was banned, the response would be reduce your household consumption of food to the most basic, remove the meat to once a month instead of twice a week, remove the fruit content, you know, so basically cut back on your on your consumption of quality food of any sort. Reduce your health expenditure. So you're no longer going to Pakistan or to a private doctor. You're basically using whatever basic service the state can provide, which is pretty basic in some of these areas. You're also subsequently selling off some of your items within the household. It might be long-term productive assets, including your livestock, your, what they would refer to as your dairy cow, your milky cow. So again, you're reducing the food intake for the family. But the other one that was absolutely critical, what we saw, was people would join the army. And it was conscription by default. I had one family that I remember. Every year, a new son would join the army. By the time we this, this ban in, in Nangarhar in eastern Afghanistan had taken place, you know, we had four sons in the army. And they'd be sent off to fight in the South, etc. They didn't want to be there. If Poppy had continued, they wouldn't have done that. Some of them would lose their sons. These are the kind of effects that you get. So you're basically sending someone off to do something dangerous, high risk, and you're stripping back all your expenses so that you've got basic health, basic food consumption, engaging in activities and work that may prove to be dangerous to your well-being and even your life. And that's what you'd be looking at. If fentanyl did take off, you'd be looking at those kind of coping strategies, as we refer to them. Yeah. So, David, you got started all this when the Taliban were in power in the late 90s. And my understanding is you haven't been able to be back in the country in recent years because the security situation is so screwy. But now that the Taliban are back, you think you'll be back in Afghanistan soon? Well, it's primarily been COVID, to be honest, that's kept me away. I had an invitation for lunch only the other day. So uh, I still live in hope that I will be sat down with my good friends and colleagues eating uh, uh, kebabs and back at work at some point. Well, listen, I just want to say, I mean, our audience can't see us, but I want to say, you know, not just for your expertise, but as one of the few other members of that elite club of strikingly handsome, bald white guys with devotees <laughs> who have spent much of their life working on drugs, I just want to thank you for all your incredible work and insights that you provided and wish you all the best of luck uh, in your return to Afghanistan. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining Thanks me. Thanks very much for the invite, Ethan. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Avivit Baryosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beattie. 
If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Next week... There are some studies that show drug overdose deaths have been on a steady upward trajectory since the 1940s, and the drug of choice has just changed, you know? My own view is that aggressive pharmaceutical marketing and liberal prescribing did harm, and the genie's a little hard to put back in the bottle. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.